0: His name is Jesus, and we all pray together in his name. Amen. Well, again, it is is a good day, even when we're apart, to worship the Lord together. And uh, if you have a Bible where you are, gathered right now in your home, whoever you're with, I want to invite you to turn in it with me as we look to the story of Resurrection Sunday. I want you to meet me this morning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. As I said a bit earlier, all four Gospels record Stories, these story, different accounts of what happened on the original Resurrection Sunday. Each of the gospel authors, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they tell the same story, but they do it with their own unique perspective. Each one gives us insights that the others don't. And, and well, I suppose we shouldn't, I suppose we shouldn't have a favorite among them in God's word. The fact of the matter is that I do. My favorite account of Resurrection Sunday is the one that's recorded in Luke's gospel that we are going to look at this morning. Now, the interesting thing, I don't know if it's interesting, but but the unique thing we're going to do this morning is we're not actually going to look at the, the story of the first Easter Sunday morning, the scene of the empty tomb, the scene of, of the women and the disciples who went there and discovered the, the grave clothes and and, and and met the angels and, and had those initial encounters with Jesus. Not that that's not important, it certainly is, but But today, for this particular Easter Sunday, we're going to go in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, to the conclusion of Resurrection Sunday, after the scenes that unfolded at the empty tomb, after a number of the appearances, maybe three or four altogether, by the time we get where we're going to be this morning and to the culmination of that day. And what we're going to find as we begin reading the Scripture in just a moment is that as best as I can tell, according to Luke's Gospel, everyone who had been a part of that day's proceedings, all the people involved in the stories that Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke himself tell about Resurrection Sunday, disciples, women, perhaps a handful of other faithful followers, they are all, and I think this is why it's... It's such a powerful story to me. They're all gathered together in one place. They're all gathered together, we believe, in the upper room where just a couple of nights before Jesus had been with his disciples for the last time, spoken to them for the last time, celebrated the Passover and instituted communion with with them. And and for us. And now they're all gathered together from their scattered stories and and encounters. Some of the people in the room had already seen the risen Christ. Others in the room perhaps many more had not. And that's where I want to jump in this morning and see what happened at the culmination of Resurrection Sunday 2000 years ago. So this morning with that in mind, hopefully you have your Bible handy and open by now. I'm going to begin reading in Luke 24 verse 36. And I'm going to read down through verse 49, where this is what the Bible says. It says, while they were telling these things, again, the whole crowd gathered together in the room, sharing the stories, and and in some cases, even the, the secondhand accounts, maybe even what they considered rumors at that point, as they were telling these things that had happened on that day, Jesus himself stood in their midst, and he said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled. And frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Now Jesus said to them, "...these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled." Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, "...thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations." beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Earlier this week, a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, sent me an essay titled A Quieter Easter. Some of you may have gotten a glimpse of it. I posted it. Uh, on social media. So some of you may have a little bit of a sneak preview of it, but but this article, this essay, A Quieter Easter, in it the author, a a fellow by the name of Scott Hosey, expresses, I think, rather well the tension that probably many, if not most of us, as believers in Jesus Christ, are experiencing on this particular Sunday morning. I'm not going to read you the whole essay, but I want to read you the introduction just to give you a flavor of what it was all about I think it meshes well with what we're going to look at in this story. In the article, the author begins, he says, What many Christians are going to miss most about this Easter Sunday are precisely the things that the actual Gospels mostly also are missing. Things like fanfare and the blast of brass instruments. Things like flower-washed landscapes and high-pitched drama and homiletical oratory of a very enthusiastic variety. I think he means lively preaching. He says, don't get me wrong, most of the ways we celebrate Easter are fine. It's just that this is not how the four Gospels present the resurrection. So in this COVID-19 year, when few of us will gather together for worship on Easter Sunday, perhaps this is a good time to let the Gospels present their understated Easter accounts and be quiet enough to receive their witness properly. Now I find that, found that essay intriguing for several different reasons. But in part, one of the reasons uh, uh, that, that, that I found it most intriguing, most appealing, the thought of, of the fact that really the first Easter was in many ways a very quiet, understated occasion, is because as I thought about it, as I thought about the sum total of, of all of the Easter observances I can remember in my lifetime, having known Jesus most of my life, having been in churches probably every Easter Sunday I've been on the planet, I thought if, if I were to try to sum up the combined... Reality, the combined experience of all that I know about Easter in a single word, the word loud would have to be in the lead pack. I don't know if it would be the only word, but it would certainly be part of it because if you think about what most of us as believers in Jesus Christ know of Easter Sunday, we know that on, e- on Resurrection Sunday, we like the music loud. We know that on Resurrection Sunday that, that many of us, we show up for worship and our clothes are loud, just a little bit little bit more than they might actually be. We know that many of us, as we gather together for family celebrations, Easter Sunday meals, afternoon egg hunts, among all the other things and memories that those bring to mind, certainly most of those occasions are allowed too. And while it isn't wrong, what we realize is that's not an option this year. A loud Easter just isn't in the cards. And I agree with the author of that essay when he suggests that maybe that's really not such a bad thing. That perhaps a a quieter Easter may be the kind of occasion we need that will allow us to inch closer, perhaps in a way we never have before, to what the original Easter Sunday was like. And that it was quiet. Now, of course, quiet is not a synonym for peace. It may have been quiet, the, the stories being told may have been rather quiet, but, but that doesn't mean that peace was, was present in the lives and in the experience and the moment for Jesus, disciples, and other followers that Easter Sunday. In fact, what a careful study of all four resurrection accounts from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John show us is, is that peace was in fact in short supply. If you go to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, and his account of Resurrection Sunday, his take on the empty tomb, it describes the women, three women coming there first, and and as they they saw that the stone had been rolled away, they felt joy and fear. And in fact, that that when they went back and reported to the disciples what they they saw, it said some were intrigued, but but many were were doubtful. They questioned The reality, maybe even the sanity, of what the women were saying. Mark's version of Resurrection Sunday morning actually ends with this sentence. It says, they, the women who went to the tomb, they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, at least at first, for they were afraid. John, in his account of Resurrection Sunday, he relates a scene, at least in part, of very confused witnesses. People who couldn't do the math as to what they were seeing and, and what they were experiencing. And in fact, in John's own words, he would have been among those confused witnesses. He was one of the first to, to the empty tomb himself on Easter Sunday morning. He says that among the witnesses, that by and large, they were people who did not as of yet understand the scriptures. And even if you trace Luke's narratives up to where we read a moment ago, the story of the resurrection begins in Luke 24 1. And and just as you scan through it, you find in verse 4 that you, find, that, that you see that, that when the women came to the tomb and they entered and didn't find the body of Jesus in verse 3, they're described in verse 4 as being perplexed. And then when a couple of, of angelic messengers appeared in verse 5, it says they were terrified. And you come down to verse 11, and again, they go back and they report to Jesus' 11 remaining disciples what they had seen and experienced and heard, and what does it say about the disciples? Get this, these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. And then really in the bulk of Luke 24, really it's my favorite part of the entire Resurrection Sunday story, there's the story of of two of Jesus' followers walking the road to Emmaus, and, and unbeknownst to them, Jesus joins them. They know that someone's with them, they just don't know it's Jesus. And, and even in that scene, at the moment, at the culmination of that story, when they finally realize that it has, in fact, been the Lord walking with them, the instant it says they realize it was him, he vanishes from their sight, leaving them what? Confused, perplexed, a lack of, a lack of peace. And again, as I said to you earlier, where we picked up the story a few moments ago in verse 36, the whole lot of them are together. And they are, they are embroiled in, in perhaps what can best be described as a quiet cacophony of conflicting opinion back and forth, rumor and truth, joy and fear, hope and, and sorrow. When suddenly, what does verse 36 say? Look again at your Bible. While they were telling these things, Jesus himself stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. When you put all that together and and what follows in the rest of our central passage here this morning, what it has prompted for me and what I want to deliver to you in just the, the few minutes we have here together in God's word, what it did for me was prompt three burning questions. The fact that Jesus came in and the first thing out of his mouth is peace be with you. Well, that prompts three, I think, burning questions for this particular Easter Sunday. Whether you know Jesus Christ well or or this is relatively new information to you, I think these are three questions that demand to be answered today about this declaration, peace be with you. The first question is is this, really just stemming from or or centering on verse 36, which is, I think, the, the right place to begin in looking at Jesus' statement, knowing the scene he's just entered into, is simply this. What kind of peace was it that Jesus offered? What kind of peace is it that Jesus, whom we say this morning, rose from the dead, what did he come to offer? What do you mean by peace? You know, given the dynamics of the past four to six weeks for most of us, most of our lives. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, for many of us this morning watching and listening in, uh, an adequate definition of peace would, for us would be those three or four, maybe even five minutes a day when no one in the house is crying, when no one in the house is hungry, when no one in the house is stuck on their homework or arguing about whose turn it is on the Xbox. Uh, we would take five minutes free of that, and we'd say, that's peace enough this morning for me. But of course, that's not what Jesus meant at all. Because the Greek word for peace that Luke used here, the term is erene, and and it's a wonderfully rich term. Because because all at once, it conveys notions of of security, of safety, of prosperity. There's even a a note of happiness that's to be found in, in this word. It, it really speaks to, to one's overall welfare inside and out. Complete peace of mind and, and wellness of being. Uh, the, the root of arene, the Greek term is it, it It means that the meaning of it is to tie loose parts together into one whole to take something that is broken or separated, tie it together in a cohesive, meaningful whole. And and so what we need to understand is that as the long before prophesied prince of peace, that's who Jesus was and is, who as of that very morning had conquered the grave. The peace be with you that Jesus greeted them with, which by the way, was a Singular. He spoke it in the singular. He was speaking to a room full of people. But as they heard him speak, what they were hearing was, not peace to all y'all, but peace to you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. My peace is for each and every one of you to receive in a personal way. Well, what we need to understand, therefore, about the nature of this peace, and again, knowing what we've already looked at regarding the scene is this, that what Jesus came to offer that, them that morning was something that they not only didn't have yet, but they were never going to arrive at on their own. They were never going to be able to, put it all, to tie it all together in a way that made everyone whole. Because in, in four brief words in English, actually just two words in the original Greek, the message Jesus was delivering to them was this, I am here to bring order to your confusion. I am here to set the record straight. I am here to pull together the scattered thoughts and ideas and feelings and emotions and and assertions and and, and everything that you're, you're throwing about here in conversation here in the room. I'm here to draw it all together around one phenomenal truth. I've risen from the dead. I've risen from the dead. And because of that, I can now establish Peace between my heavenly Father and each and every one of you. I am here to bring peace between Almighty God and fallen, broken sinners. So, what's the answer to question number one? What kind of peace did Jesus offer? The answer is this the peace of a personal relationship with God, the peace of a a saving relationship with God, the reality, the acknowledgement there is a God in heaven. He is real and He is holy but that we, in our own right, we are sinful and we are broken. Jesus said, because of what I just did, the cross and out of the tomb, there can be peace between you and the living God. Which, to my way of thinking, prompts a second burning question. And I think it's a legitimate question to be asked by believers and skeptics alike. So whatever camp you fall into this morning, This one is also for you. And the question is simply this. If that's the kind of peace that Jesus said he was coming to offer, question number two is this. How could he say that? On what grounds, by what authority could Jesus, can Jesus, and we in turn on his behalf, make that kind of claim that you can have peace with the living God? You know, throughout his ministry, if you read the Gospels, and you don't even have to read them all that closely, but one of the things you'll pick up on is that, that Jesus' fiercest opponents at every turn, they were never able to explain away his miracles. And they were never able to refute his teaching. Every time they asked him a question, he had a better question to ask in return. And and, and because of that, because of the the frustration they experience, we can't do anything about the miracles. We can't do anything about the teaching, but the whole world's running after him, and that's really rattled our cage, and we don't want that to happen. Well, well, what you see them over and over again in the Gospels resort to, Jesus' enemies, is attacking his authority. Who gives you the right to say this? Who gave you the right to heal that man? Where do you get the authority to, to say the things you're saying and do the things you're doing? And and in a similar, a different, but, but at the same time sort of similar way, it wouldn't surprise me at all if at least some of the disciples in the room that Easter evening heard, at least at first, Jesus' offer of peace with a, with a skepticism of their own. In fact, I think it's right there in the text. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, peace be to you. We just talked about what that means. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And then Jesus, he drills right past outward appearance and he goes straight for the heart and he says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? What are you so skeptical about? Why are you questioning what you're seeing? Well, the answer is they needed proof. They wanted proof anyway. And guess what? Jesus was there to give it. Because In order to authenticate his offer, to validate the fact that he really can and really does establish peace between God and and sinners like us. Well, he gave them two extraordinary proofs. The first one was the proof of his physical presence. The first is simply the the proof of his physical presence because one of the unique things about the next several verses from verse 39 down to about verse 43, and I know this probably wasn't Luke's main idea, but I think it's significant nonetheless, is this, in those span of verses, Jesus in his conversation and interaction with the disciples in order to prove that he really had risen from the dead, that they weren't seeing a ghost, a phantom, a spirit, well, we're shown that at least four of the five major human senses are in operation in the life and the presence of Jesus right there. I just think this is kind of cool. Look at verse 39. Jesus said to them, after asking them, why are they so doubtful? Why are they so skeptical in their hearts? He says, look, see, vision, right? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch, second sense, me and see. Take hold of me, because the spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I'm really here. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet and Well, they couldn't believe it because of their joy and amazement. He says, I'll give you another one. He says, have you here something to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took and ate it before them. Now, why in the world would Luke tell us about that fact? Because Jesus was alive. They could see him with their eyes. They could touch him with their hands. They they realized that he had this full sense of of taste and and, and human ability and and capacity. And of course, it it ought to go without saying that the whole scene unfolded in, in conversation. They could hear his voice. They could see him, they could hear him, they could touch him. Smell isn't mentioned here. I'm sure they could smell him. It was was all there. It was all so real. It was proof. And while we don't have, of course, that firsthand evidence to go on, and I'm sure we'd love to have it, we weren't there in the room, maybe two dozen people, maybe maybe a few more, are all the people, at least at that point in history, who, who had the chance to to see the proof of his resurrection in that way, I I think we shouldn't be discouraged in the least. Because the second proof we do share with them, in fact, I would argue we have more of this second proof than they did, not just in that moment, but throughout the rest of their earthly lives. And that is the proof of fulfilled prophecy. And and the reason we're going to go there is because that's where Jesus went in verse 44. It says, Now he said to them, Listen, as you're still doubting and skeptical and wondering, is this whole resurrection thing a hoax or is it real? He said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things, everybody where you are, say all things. (laughs) All things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets. And the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, now to us, that's what we call the Old Testament. He says, everything that was written about Messiah in the Old Testament, I told you and now I've proven to you, it is fulfilled in me. Did you know that in the Old Testament there are more than 300 verifiable messianic prophecies? Prophecies in, in, in the history, in the law, in, in the books of poetry, and in the prophets more than 300 clear messianic prophecies that were all fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ and what he did while he was here. That's 300 prophecies written by more than two dozen authors over a span of more than 1,500 years. And by the way, we have absolute proof that all of those prophecies were written, recorded, completed more than four centuries before Jesus arrived on the planet. Prophetic fulfillment. Did you also know, just to clear up any confusion, maybe, actually I'm going to create some confusion maybe before I clear it up, but, but that's what I'm after here. Did you also know that, and this happened many years ago, and I know some of you have probably heard this, but for others of us it's, it may be fresh information, that a number of years ago a, a scientific, a, a mathematical study was actually conducted to determine what are the odds, what's the probability that actually just eight... Out of those 300-plus Messianic prophecies, eight of the most prominent of those prophecies, things that that anyone could look at and say, yeah, that was fulfilled in a man named Jesus of Nazareth, what's the mathematical probability that just eight of those 300 prophecies are fulfilled in one man, in one human being? And by the time they, they completed the study, here's what they determined. The chances, the probability that a single person would fulfill eight of those prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. And for those of you who don't remember middle school math, that's one followed by 17 zeros. That's a really big number. And, I, and what the authors of that study concluded is, is that doesn't, I mean, we all know that's big, but, but what does that mean? So they said, let's well, illustrate it. And the illustration that they provided was this they said, the probability of one to the 17, uh, in 10 to the 17th power is roughly equivalent to going to the state of Texas. And covering the entire state of Texas. If you've driven across Texas, you know it takes forever. You just feel like you're never going to get out. All right, biggest state in the continental United States of America. And they say you, you cover the land of the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Okay, silver dollars two feet deep. And then they said take one of those silver dollars, put a little X on the back of it, a little red X, toss it out there. And then if such a thing were possible, just stir the whole mess up two feet of silver dollars over the entire landmass of the state of Texas, then blindfold somebody, send them into that, so you can walk around as long as you want. You can go wherever you want. You can reach as deep as you'd like, but you get one chance to pick up a coin. One and only one. And one in ten to the 17th power is roughly equivalent to, on one try, whoever that blindfolded person is, reaching in and pulling out the coin with the X. That's the probability of eight prophecies being fulfilled in any one person. And what the Bible shows us, and you can do it for yourself and see, is that all the Messianic prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And, of course, the disciples in the moment didn't know that. They'd never seen a silver dollar. They'd never been to Texas, but (laughs) some people probably think that they have been to Texas. But anyway, well, the disciples didn't know that, we do. I would submit to you we have greater proof than even the disciples did of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which in turn authenticates His offer of peace with the living God. And I believe that as such, not only did Jesus have every right to make His offer, we have every reason to accept it. His offer of peace with God. Which then leads us, of course, to the the third and final question. It's the question we always aim to land on in one way or another here as a Maranatha Church family. The third question is this, if question number one is what kind of peace did Jesus offer? Peace of a personal relationship with God, how could he say that? Because he had the authority to do so. The third and final question is, why does it matter? Why does any of this, much less all of it, matter? Or as we often say together when we are as a church family, so what? Why should we, whether believers in Jesus or not, why should we care about any of this? We'll try to answer that question, I'd invite you to start, go back to the beginning of our passage this morning, with really the great irony of verses 36 and 37. Because again, not to belabor the point, but just remember, the scene opens with, with all of Jesus' followers that, that could be gathered together, and, and, and although their opinions are conflicted, and, 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 and their insights differ, and they're trying to sort the whole thing out, they're only talking about one thing. What? They're talking about the the news that Jesus rose from the dead. Did it or didn't happen? Who can we believe and who we can't? That's the only topic of conversation that evening. That's what they're talking about. That's what they're trying to solve. And the great irony is that the the instant he appears, the one about whom they're talking, they're trying to figure out, is he really alive? He shows up and verse 37 says, rather than relieved and calm, they're startled and frightened. And they conclude we're seeing a spirit. I find that ironic. I, I find that... Interesting. Actually, I find it kind of helpful (laughs) in some ways, but what we need to see from it is that it was anything but peaceful. The appearance of Jesus just immediately did not immediately bring peace to their hearts. But then notice the transformation that occurs as they begin processing and engaging in conversation with them. Because again, in verses 39 and 40, what does Jesus do? He says, look at my hands and feet. Touch me and see. And, and then he showed them his hands and his feet that, that bore the imprint of his crucifixion wounds. Bore physical proof that, that he'd been to the cross. And what happens in verse 41? Well, suddenly suddenly fear and doubt give way to, the Bible says, joy and amazement. There's a, a transition that's taken place, a transformation. After which, when you get down to verse 45, it says that after Jesus had, had sort of cleared the clutter of their confusion and their doubt well then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures as it were as we prayed a little bit earlier he sort of had to roll some stones away from some skeptical doubting disbelieving hearts and then he began to pour the truth of the message into them and going forward what all four gospel accounts say and then right on through the book of acts and the new testament that give us the history of the early church. They show us that the men and women in the room that night were never, ever the same again. They were transformed by Jesus Christ. And and the reason that matters is because what Jesus told them, what he gave them in the passages, final four verses, is exactly what he offers to us today too. To any one of us who will hear and respond and receive his offer of peace. And very quickly before we're done, I done, I I want you to see that in the final four verses where Jesus really lays it out for them. Verses 46 through 49. In this offer of peace, he expresses to them that if you will receive what I offer, this peace I'm offering to you, it comes with at least three things. There are three things that when you come to me for peace, you will receive. Number one, a clean slate. Come to me believe in me, that I've risen from the dead, that I died for your sin, and I will give you a clean slate. C.S. Lewis once wrote, I think it was in Mere Christianity, he said, if I find in myself a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy, he said the only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. And, and don't we all know, as as we look at the world, that that this is not the the world that we want it to be. There's a longing in us all. And and I really believe that if if COVID-19 has shown us all anything in the last month and a half, is that the world we live in is in fact broken, and we in fact are helpless. We can do some stuff. We can meet some needs, but we can't undo the damage. We, We can't make it all go away. There can be healing and And we should be praying for healing and vaccine and and all of that stuff. But if you haven't gotten the message yet, today's the day to get it. Things are not as they should be. And we all know it deep down inside. Whatever our spiritual ideas, convictions, preferences may be. And I would submit to you humbly... But very boldly this morning, that only the gospel of Jesus Christ provides a satisfactory explanation for why the world is the way it is and why you feel that way. And it's one word that a lot of people don't like. The word is sin. The only satisfactory explanation for why the world is the way it is is what the Bible calls sin. The internal spiritual corruption that stains all of our lives. And which also rules the planet, the physical creation, the political structures. Everything on this planet is corrupted and tainted and bent by sin. And the message of Easter Sunday is there's only one escape. There's only one way out of it. There's only one reason or possibility of peace and hope and it is this. Look at verse 46. Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed to all the nations. There is a way out. There's peace. There's hope. And it is through repentance. Lord God, I may not be the biggest sinner, but I'm a sinner. And you are holy. And I realize this Easter weekend that, that Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead for me. And when we put our faith in him, and we respond to Jesus' offer of peace, the Bible says our slate is wiped clean forever. It doesn't mean we won't sin anymore, but it means our sins are no longer held against us. God counts you not as guilty, but as acquitted, and clean, and free. That's the first reason why responding to Jesus' offer of peace matters. Once and for all, forever, he cleans your slate and gives you eternal life. The second thing Jesus said in his final words here, that his offer of peace, that receiving it gives us, is not only, first of all, a clean slate, but secondly, a reason to live. He gives us a reason to live. You know, another hard lesson that coronavirus is teaching us all, and and maybe you've awakened to it already, maybe you haven't, but it's this, that the things that we cling to for security and for pleasure are fragile and temporary. Everything we stake our lives on as fulfilling other than Christ can be gone in a moment and will not last forever. And so whether whether your pursuits, what you pursue in life, and and we even fall into this trap as as followers of Jesus. We we get off track, we get turned around and go the wrong way. And where do we begin looking? What pursuits do we go after to give us fulfillment, to give us pleasure, to give us security and hope? we, We pursue the material. We pursue the financial. We pursue the sexual. We pursue the relational. We pursue one thing or another. And then we have to keep pursuing it. Because it doesn't last. It's never enough. They don't give us an enduring reason to live. But again, the message of Resurrection Sunday is that Jesus Christ does. Look at verse 48. He says, once you respond to the call to repentance and the forgiveness of sins, he said to his disciples, all of them in the room, not just the 11, but the women, the men, whoever was there, you are witnesses of these things. Now, Jesus didn't mean by that, that that you simply saw it. You witnessed it, and good for you. No, he means you are going into the world as witnesses of these things. I am now giving you the reason to live. You are to live for the glory of God. You are to live to take this news. He said, it needs to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Well, they were in Jerusalem. How's it going to get to the nations? Through them. Whether they become traveling evangelists, as some of them did, or they simply go back to their vocation, whatever it was God gifted them to do. Wherever he puts us, wherever he sends us, the the reason to live, the reason for living is to glorify him and share the good news of the gospel with others. And I will say to you this morning, to those of you who are skeptical, you ain't going to know it until you try it. The message of the Bible is you have to believe before you can see. And and I could introduce you to some people who have believed and seen, and in Jesus Christ they would tell you there's there's no greater purpose in life. There's no greater adventure to go on than the adventure of saying yes to Him. His offer of peace, it, it first of all grants us, A spiritually clean slate. It, second of all, grants us a reason to live. And in the meantime, through and amidst it all, the third thing Jesus says in verse 49 is his offer of peace comes with a very comforting promise. And that comforting promise is this. As a follower of Jesus, you'll never be alone. Verse 49. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Now, we don't know what that is in this context, but but they did because they'd been with him a couple of nights before. And he said, I, the promise of my father is the Holy Spirit. That I'm going to go away and he's going to come. I've been beside you, he's going to come dwell within you. That's better, Jesus said. And he said, so stay here in the city until you are clothed with that power from on high. What Jesus is saying there, and again, this is a spiritual truth, and you've got to trust Jesus to find it, to discover it, to experience it. But what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, is that the moment you surrender your life to him, you are immediately and forever indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. He takes up residence in your life. He begins to transform you from the inside out. He never, ever leaves again. And is that not a great truth to possess in this time of radical social distancing when some of us literally are, 99% of the time, all alone? No, you're not. Not with Christ. Because the Holy Spirit the comforter dwells within you. And, and taking together what I'm saying to you this morning is this: I firmly believe that's proof enough. I firmly believe that's reason enough to respond to the risen Lord's offer of peace. That's why it matters. The question this morning is, do you? Do you believe it's enough. Can you say it's enough? Because the big idea this Resurrection Sunday and, and the message, the third message of Holy Week that needs to go viral. The King has come. His love endures. Well, it's this, that the peace you're pursuing is only found in Jesus. The peace that we're all pursuing is only found in Jesus. Peace is a person. And He is reaching out today to you. You can look anywhere else you want to you will end up disappointed because only Jesus can transform us from the inside out and that's where the problem lies. So as we go to prayer, we're going to in a moment sing a a very triumphant, wonderful song of worship to to conclude our time together. But before we do that, I'm just going to invite you where you are just to, to, to take a posture of prayer, whether that's bowing your head, closing your eyes, kneeling down, whatever. You've got all kinds of freedom because you're on your own today, probably. But I want to give you, us all, an opportunity to respond to whatever the Lord may be saying to you through what we've looked at here. Maybe today is the day that what you need most is that clean slate. Today is the day when you need to stop making excuses. You need to stop saying, but but one more question. You need to lay down your pride and, and surrender to Jesus. It's as simple as a, a single prayer. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Save me. Lord Jesus, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. I trust you today. And that's what some of you need to do right now. You know, others, you need to, it's time to yield to the calling that he's placed on your life. You know Jesus. You've known him a long time, maybe. Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're an adult. But while you know Jesus and you've invited him into your life and into your heart, truth of the matter is you're still living primarily for yourself. And and I know that feeling. Sometimes it's fear that holds us back. Sometimes it's it's concerned about the future that holds us back. Sometimes it's just the stubbornness of our heart that says, I want, I want it both. I want Jesus and I want to do whatever I want to do. And it's time to yield to his reason to live and say, Lord, I don't know what it means. I don't know where you'll send me. I don't know what you'll ask me to do, but, but I'll do it. I, I want the adventure of living for Jesus. And, and then there's some today particularly those of you who may be in a place where you're alone, who you need to rest in the promise of the presence and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And invite Him. Say, Lord, Holy Spirit, show me your comforting presence like I've never known it before. I'm just going to take the next moment of quiet as the team prepares to lead us in this final song. Before I pray, I, I've got to give all of you, all of us, a chance to respond to the Lord. Whatever it is he's calling you to do. So let's just get quiet before him. And I'll close this. I pray I just I feel burdened to speak to those of you who are wrestling right now saying maybe tomorrow not today I know I should but what are they going to think or what am I going to do let it go for Jesus sake for your sake let it go trust in him yield to him worship him don't make excuses. Don't hold back. Don't say maybe another day. Again, if anything has become clear as recent, in recent weeks, it's that we aren't guaranteed another day. Come to Jesus. The stone of unbelief be rolled away from your heart. Well, Heavenly Father, I thank you. Lord, one of the things I'm most thankful about in the resurrection stories of the Gospels is that they show us real life. Father, if this were a story that were made up, if it were an invention of man, we wouldn't see fear and doubt and skepticism and unbelief. Father, we'd see a great big party where everybody knew it was coming and, and there weren't any, any questions. But Father, these were real men and women dealing with life in this real world. And there were real-life consequences to yielding to Jesus, both in terms of joy and blessing and also in terms of worldly opposition. Father, I'm thankful for, for the unvarnished truth of Resurrection Sunday, and I'm thankful, we are thankful, for the triumphant message that though Jesus died, he lives. Father, I don't know what you're doing in each of our hearts today, but I pray that you'll finish what has been started. I pray that you'll take the things that I've spoken, and anything that's true, that you would seal it in our hearts, and whatever is distracting, that you would melt it away. And Father, we would take this most unusual of Easter's, and and that it would become, for each and every one of us, the most memorable of Easter's, the most pivotal of, of Easter's, because it was the day we came to, or came back to, you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your bloody cross and your empty tomb. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for indwelling us and sealing us and ensuring we'll never, ever be alone. What more could we ask for than this? We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name.